Okay, well, today happens to be Easter, in case you didn't realize that. And uh, it is a dawn of a new day, uh, both historically and really it's an invitation for this to be a new day for us again and again and again. So let's just see what the text has to say. Uh, We're looking at the Gospel of John uh, for the Easter story. And I'll talk a little bit about this in a while, but the gospel accounts differ in how they talk about what happened on this day 2,000 years ago. So you're getting the gospel John's account. Uh, He wrote his gospel last uh, and many years later after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written, maybe as many as 20 years later, Uh, maybe even more than that, depending when you think Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. So he has a different take on it, a little more of a theological take, and there's one really cool surprise thing uh, that shows up on the very first screen. So here we go. This is from the message uh, paraphrase. Early in the morning on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone was moved away from the entrance. Now I need to stop here just for a second. Uh, Several weeks ago on March 19, in fact, we rolled a video uh, of a well-known church historian And she blew our minds uh, because she let us know that there is a a new discovery about an ancient text that deals with Mary Magdala. Uh, She's been uh, called Mary Magdalene, and for a very long time, it's just been assumed, uh, like many people, um, that she was Mary from uh, the community or the area of Magdala. But research showed us that uh, Magdala really wasn't much of a community yet in Jesus' day and age. So it wouldn't have made a lot of sense that they would have referred to her as Mary Magdalene if there wasn't a Magda to be from. Do you know what I mean? And they noticed a correction, an error, really, that was made in the ancient texts uh, regarding a, a different text uh, that Mary's name was scratched out and Martha's name was put in its place. And it turns out it has deep theological significance. Uh, The artwork that you see here uh, refers to uh, Mary Magdalene uh, being the apostle to the apostles, the first apostle, if you believe it. Magdala really isn't referring to a community we discovered, but Magdala, referring to the Aramaic language, means the tower. So we are seeing the Tower of Mary, this person that is on par uh, with Peter himself is in this text, and she's the first one to go take care of Jesus' body. So she ran at once. Uh, She saw that the, uh, came to the tomb and saw that the stone was moved away from the entrance. She ran at once to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, breathlessly panting. They took the master from the tomb. We don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple left immediately for the tomb. They ran neck and neck. The other disciple got to the tomb first, outrunning Peter. Why did we need to know that? I don't know. (laughs) But now we know this other guy was faster than Peter. Great. Stooping to look in, he saw the pieces of linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter arrived after him, entered the tomb, observed the linen cloths lying there, And the kerchief used to cover his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but separate, neatly folded by itself. Then the other disciple, the one who had gotten there first, went into... Thank you again (laughs) for that important detail. (laughs) Kind of think John's bragging here a little bit. Uh, Went into the tomb, took one look at the evidence, and believed. No one yet knew from the Scripture that he had to rise from the dead. The disciples then went back home. But Mary stood outside the tomb 
weeping. This is Mary of Magdala, Mary the Tower, apostle to the apostles. As she wept, she knelt to look into the tomb and saw two angels sitting there, dressed in white, one at the head, the other at the foot of where Jesus' body had been laid. That helps, helps you. They said to her, Woman, why do you weep? They took my master, she said, and I don't know where they put him. After she said this, she turned away and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize him. It's curious. Jesus spoke to her, Woman, uh, why do you weep? Who are you looking for? And by the way, uh, just so you understand the tone here, um, when Jesus says, Woman, this isn't like, Woman, why are you weeping? <laughs> That's not the tone at all. Uh, this is the same tone that we see Jesus using toward his own mother at the beginning of this gospel. And it's actually a, a beautiful, warm uh, reference to this woman who he knows. Woman, why, are you, why do you weep? Why, who are you looking for? She, thinking that he was the gardener, said, Mister, if you took him, tell me where you put him so I can care for him. And Jesus said, Mary. Turning to face him, she said in Hebrew, Rabbani, meaning teacher. Isn't that interesting that there's something about the sound of his voice that she connected with, that she knew, this is the voice of the one I've been following. I got to think that still happens today. I really believe it. Martha Beck speaks of it in her book. So I just want to pause and say, keep an ear out. Because you just never know how the Spirit of God might be whispering. You just never know what God may actually be wanting to say to you today, well beyond whatever I come up with. The much more important voice to listen for is the other. So just keep an open mind and an open ear. Because Mary did, and she recognized who was right there in her presence. Well, Jesus said, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go to my brothers and tell them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went, telling the news to the disciples. I saw the Master, and she told them everything he said to her. That's why she's the apostle to the apostles. She was the first one to proclaim what had happened to Jesus to the other apostles. Well, I got to tell you, uh, even though uh, you're here, uh, most of you are here uh, of your own volition, but I imagine there may be one or two here that are draggies, and I respect you, all right? Uh, hopefully our coffee and donuts have taken the edge off just a little bit. Hopefully that goofy instructional video at the beginning uh, may have helped you understand we're a pretty relaxed church. Uh, and I understand that being a draggy on Easter Sunday may be kind of a tough pill to swallow. Uh, because it's one of these stories that you're like, eh, really? And I get it. I get it. I remember a few years ago, I was uh, with a, a woman um, uh, in our church, and she, was, she had terminal cancer, and we're having a conversation. She had a family member there uh, who grew up in the church, and we we're talking about things like this and uh, kind of apocalyptic things. This, the person uh, was kind of just thinking out loud a little bit, and it was all hopeful for, for the woman in particular. But I remember her family member just kind of laughed out loud at some of the claims of the Bible about how things might roll out uh, as things progress. 
and kind of sounded like zombie apocalypse uh, to her. I understand uh, the, the problem that we have here. It is, a, it is a problem for the modern mind. What do we do uh, with this story about a guy who apparently was dead for three days, sealed in a tomb, sealed in a tomb. Uh, this isn't the sliding glass door, but this is a several hundred pound stone uh, that, you know, was sort of on this little bit of a slope so the thing would roll in place because they wanted it to stay there. And then somehow this many hundred pound stone uh, on Sunday morning has been moved away and no body to be found. What do we do with this? How does the modern mind make any sense of it at all? And there might be some of us who say, oh, we just have to have faith. We just have faith like a child. So my wife, Lynn, uh, she's the ministry, uh, children's ministry director here, and the kids are having a fun time, maybe having a better time there uh, than we are here. So you're welcome to go <laughs> make a cute Easter basket craft and have some, some wonderful, delicious treats and even have an Easter egg hunt in a little bit. But as, as she was thinking about the curriculum, she custom makes all the curriculum because a lot of the curriculum out there doesn't quite fit uh, our sensibilities and the way we think about things. And she was just like, man, this is not an easy, uh, this is not an easy story to teach children. I mean, I grew up with it, and it was just sort of like, yeah, okay, I know what Easter's all about. I knew it my whole life. I grew up in the church literally from about two weeks old on. But just think about it from a kid's perspective. You're told uh, that this guy, Jesus, uh, was thrown into a tomb, and then he came back from the dead. And you're a kid. And you might just take it on faith immediately, like, okay, the teacher, Lynn, uh, said it. Mommy and Daddy are saying this. So I'm going to believe it. And they're going to keep nodding their head until they have a harder time nodding their head. And things don't quite add up. And they're asked to just have this faith that what we read about this thing is exactly as it's stated. And then maybe they're in middle school or high school or college, and they start reading the other stories of Easter and after Easter and it's not necessarily helpful at first glance, especially if they've been told um, you have to believe that the Bible is accurate in every possible way, cannot be wrong. It's as if God, you know, controlled the quill, so to speak, so don't even question it. But then as you read the gospel accounts themselves, you find out that like Mary, uh, most of the times when Jesus appeared, Easter and after Easter, Nobody recognized him. In the Gospel of John, a little bit later, he's making a fish breakfast for the guys. They're out fishing, and they come, and they, the, the Scripture says, well, they knew it was him, but nobody asked if it was him because they just knew it, meaning at first glance, they weren't sure who this guy was making breakfast on the shore. On the road to Emmaus, one of the other gospel writers, you got two disciples, guys who knew Jesus well, and they're walking along with the resurrected Jesus, and they don't recognize him the whole journey. It wasn't until he broke bread, so something happened to help them see this is who is here. And I think that's a real gift to us. Now, it's not a gift when you're in this spot of thinking it's all got to make sense and it all fits the box. It's problematic. And I want to help you a little bit today to think through some of these things. And what do we do with stuff like this in the modern mind? Where, how, do we get, how do we get to a place where 
faith is working for us, not, and not in a way sabotaging it or cherry-picking this and that, but how do we come to a sensible place when we look at a story like this, we can walk away with significant meaning. To get there, I have a few questions for you. And these are pretty easy questions to answer because they're just all about your life. So um, here we go. This is where we're going. Um, I got a few remember when questions for you. Uh, so uh, do any of you uh, remember when TikTok didn't exist? <laughs> right? Do you remember when uh, Snapchat didn't exist? How about Facebook? How about MySpace? Anybody even remember MySpace to forget about MySpace? All right, very good. Uh, who remembers when COVID-19 wasn't in our vocabulary? Yeah, right. Who remembers when working remotely wasn't viable? Right? Uh, who remembers when Zoom meetings weren't a thing? Who wishes they still weren't a thing? <laughs> right, right. Who remembers when streaming your movies and shows was not an option? Right, yep. Uh, when your only way to watch your shows and movies was an aerial antenna, not even cable yet. Anybody remember that? Yep. Uh, how many of this is pushing you back a little bit? How many of you remember when televisions themselves were a luxury item? And it might take you a long time, and you probably might even remember if your hand went up, who was the first one on the block uh, to get a TV? And I won't ask about color. Thank you, Sandy, for admitting to how old you are. Fantastic. <laughs> Switching gears a little bit, how many of you remember when smartphones and tablets didn't exist? Yeah, of course. Uh, how many do you remember uh, when mobile phones were the size of bricks and only used by wealthy people? <laughs> right. Uh, how many of you remember when uh, telephones required cords? <laughs> yeah, right. How many of you remember when telephones didn't have buttons, they only had a dial? How long did that take? How? <laughs> That's why I'm patient. <laughs> it took forever uh, to call somebody. We were lamenting that uh, with... Uh, I uh, was somebody recently about long-distance relationship, and my wife and I, uh, we started dating in 1991. And our first summer, we spent apart, and we literally had to limit our long-distance phone calls because they were expensive. Remember that? And we wrote literal letters to each other. Can you believe that? I know. Isn't it quaint? Right. <laughs> I'm a dinosaur. Terrific. All right, how many uh, remember when bottled water only referred to those big jugs that sat upon a water cooler and wasn't its own industry? Yeah. Uh, how many remember when nobody gave a thought, uh, a second thought to drinking water from a garden hose? <laughs> right, everybody did it. Uh, how many remember this? All right, I'm going to watch my crowd here. How many of you remember when your home didn't have a flush toilet? All right, I knew I'd have a few. Right, fantastic. That's awesome. That you're, I mean, think about that. Think about how much history uh, some of you have seen. Uh, we used to have, a, a, I, I, I call her one of our little old ladies in the church, and I mean that as a term of endearment. Uh, we have several little old ladies. Uh, we still have a little old lady in Darlene Tremuin, and it's fair to say because she's a little old lady. She's only like four foot tall, but it's wonderful. And I mean it as a term of endearment. I love these people. We had a little old lady named Margaret Pretty. Uh, who grew up in Napa. She's long since passed. And she rode a horse to school in Napa. Right. I mean, that's pretty cool. Things have changed. All right, final one in this uh, section. Um, how many of you remember when you last saw Elvis? Okay. All right. Very good. Excellent. I'm glad I didn't see any hands there. Very good. Well, all of that just reminds us that our experience in life uh, just 
in the last hundred years has changed very differently. Our way of thinking about the world, our way of engaging the world, our cosmology, our worldview has changed radically. And that's the way it's always been. Uh, things change. We adapt. Those new things that we hated when they first came become normalized. And we get really comfortable with them. Now we get angry, really angry, uh, when our Wi-Fi isn't fast enough to stream our favorite shows, right? <laughs> Something we had never heard of, you know, 25 years ago. We get mad uh, when our internet goes down and we can't surf the internet, which didn't exist until Al Gore invented it in the 1980s. <laughs> right? Now it's normal. So many things are normal now that weren't normal before, and we adapt, and we trade things out. Most of you, except for maybe a conversation piece, are no longer using rotary phones, and you're kind of glad about it. We get used to normal, and then we move on to new normal, and then we move on to new normal, and new normal, and new normal. The same is true theologically. We may not realize it because we're in a time right now. But the reality is, and this makes a lot of sense, this will help be helpful when we get there uh, in a few moments, but I just want to ask you if you can remember some more things. And now we're talking more about faith and theology. Can any of you remember when very few broadcasts, very few churches broadcast their services on the radio or TV? Once COVID hit, <laughs> How many millions of churches are now available everywhere? It's just the new normal. Options, podcasts, uh, all over the place from all over the world. Uh, I have uh, a brother and sister-in-law that uh, they watch a pastor uh, from a church a lot like ours in Nashville every week. That's their new church home, even though they live in Lawrence, Kansas. It's fascinating fascinating. How many of you can remember when uh, attending church was only possible in person? You really didn't have any other options. How many of you remember when, when most stores were closed on Sunday out of respect for Christian worship? Right. Uh, I grew up a part of my life in Ottawa, Kansas, which was a dry town anyway, in a dry county, and nothing was open except maybe some gas stations on Sunday. Now everything happens on Sunday like any other day. Kids sports, all the stores are open. Uh, it's it's a, just another day. How many of you remember when Bibles were actual books that people carried around instead of their phones? <laughs> right? And they cost money. <laughs> they were harder to use. Uh, now you have uh, Bibles on your phones, and not just a Bible, but you can get about any version you want on the Bible. And that creates its own complexity and weirdness. How many of you remember that uh, when the only version of the Bible that most people knew about was the King James Version? And that became the, new, the normal, right? And then that became codified as the only uh, appropriate scripture. And still to this day, uh, there are churches here in Napa and all over the country that that is still the only authorized version of the Bible uh, to be used, even though uh, academically there are far better translations of the Bible. We have sometimes a hard time of letting go of normal. How many of you remember a time when literally two-thirds of the people in our country went to church on Sunday and you were an outlier if you didn't? 
My dad remembers being a pastor at this time. And uh, the corporate executives, when they would move people into communities, one of their instructions was, as soon as you move to a new community, find a church and join it. The businesses were telling their people to do that because it made them respectable citizens. Fascinating how things have changed. That is almost completely reversed now. And now uh, you're a little weird uh, for going to church instead of not going to church. How many of you remember uh, when the dominant teaching of the church was that God created the heavens and earth and everything in it in six literal 24-hour days? Right. That was hot, hot, hot news 100 years ago. And there was a trial happening about 100 years ago all about that, the Scopes trial. How many of you remember uh, when the... Now, this one's going to be dating things back here. Uh, how many remember when the church was known more for its work championing the cause of fairness and safety for women and children than convincing people to believe as a means of guaranteeing heaven? Right. Maybe in the 1960s, but much more so over 100 years ago when it was the church that came to, the, to, to speak for women and children who were being abused in the workplace. It was the church that got that changed. It's fascinating. How many of you remember? Uh, none of you are really going to remember this. Well, somewhat, still here. How many of you remember when most religious authorities viewed God as a distant, almighty judge ready to smite the earth? Some of you heard that growing up. How many of you remember uh, when most human, believe, most human beings believed that the earth is flat? <laughs> Anybody today believe the earth is flat? We welcome everybody, all right? Your position may not be supported by many here, but you're welcome here, okay? Well, of course, we don't see it that way anymore. How many of you remember when most human beings believed that the sun revolved around the earth and not the other way around? Things that we think of as obvious and normal now, not so much before. How many of you remember when there wasn't one pope uh, ruling the Catholic Church. There weren't two popes ruling the Catholic Church. There were three popes operating at the same time for the Catholic, which means united, church. <laughs> it's real. It happened. How many of you remember when the church split, church capitalcy split over whether or not communion bread should contain yeast? It happened. How many of you remember when the church confidently declared that some people may suffer eternity in hell? To a name, those people are lost forever. Some still today. How many believe, or how many of you remember a time uh, when, uh, when the, our faith ancestors didn't even believe there was an afterlife? Being a pastor in the United States, which has been deeply informed uh, by Christianity for sure and a particular flavor of Christianity, I got to tell you, uh, I, do, I do a lot of funerals. Uh, I do six or eight that are just for the broader community, uh, that I get a call and they just need somebody like me to come in. And it doesn't matter uh, what kind of life the person led. And I've seen it all. I have seen it all. Uh, from saintly type folks that everybody in the audience would agree uh, that, oh, yeah, for sure, they've got a, a place in heaven. To people that, you know, if you just met them on the street or knew some of their story, would be like, good luck, buddy. That's just, uh, I don't think so. 
But I got to tell you that in all the funerals that I've done, I've never been in one where when it came time for people to share their story or talk about their hope, where they did not say they were sure they were going to see their loved one again. This idea that life goes beyond the grave has so permeated our psyche, so permeated our worldview of thinking that now people are questioning it all over again, maybe because it's so much assumed. And a lot of that assumption is based on Easter. Why do I tell you all this? Why do I bother you with all of this? I bother you with all of this because it's important to know as we look at a text like this that when we're looking at it, we are looking at this right now in 2023. And issues of how do you understand the Bible and is it accurate, is it inaccurate, these are questions of our time now. But go back a thousand years, they had different questions, different tensions. Go back 500 years before that, different questions, different tensions, different splits. The tension is never going to go away. It's just there. And it must be. If, if I stood up here, or sat up here, and told you, you must believe me exactly what I'm saying. You must take me literally about what I understand to be true of God, because what I'm saying is absolutely true. It's at that moment that you should probably leave. Because as soon as we think we can understand God so comprehensively, this greater other, this being, <laughs> that the Bible itself, uh, God's thoughts are higher than ours, God's ways are higher than ours, as soon as anybody says with absolute certainty, this is God, and whatever box they can conjure, you know you're in trouble. There will always be a tension. It will never be resolved because we'll always find a new thing to have conversation about, to debate. The things that we're debating now in 100 years, 200 years, they're going to look back and think, well, that was, that's kind of funny. I can't believe they were debating about that. Things that are very serious now uh, weren't even known about 100 years before. And we are in one of these moments, a church historian said. She said that about every 500 years, the church globally has a garage sale. And they put out on the lawn a lot of the doctrine and the dogma that they think they probably can let go of and move on to new things. When Jesus uh, started his ministry, that re represented a garage sale moment, an unwelcome one. Things were going to be radically different within that first century that Jesus started out. The Jewish uh, system entirely, the entire religion was going to completely change its thinking about how do we stay in the good graces of God after 70 AD when the temple was demolished. New realities. Why was Jesus killed? He wasn't killed for being a nice guy. He was a nice guy. I'm sure of that. I'm sure he was a wonderful person. He was killed because he was challenging the assumptions of the religious leaders of his day. After a while, they couldn't take it anymore. They were worried about him causing unrest in the Jewish people. They were in charge of keeping things peaceful. So they worked with the Roman Empire to make sure that he got killed, and they won. The message and the messenger, they hoped, was finally going to be squashed. 
That Friday, when all that went down from the early morning hours before sunrise on Friday morning, the day went from bad to worse, and by uh, late afternoon, Jesus was dead. After being unjustly arrested, falsely accused, uh, on a trial that shouldn't have happened, uh, had two opportunities for the crowd uh, who was there, who was cherry-picked to be there, uh, to be uh, given a stay on his execution. And they called for his crucifixion instead, beat him some more, made him carry his own uh, torturous device. And there in front of the city, uh, he was displayed as he died, saying, you think like this guy? This is what your demise might be. After the disciples saw this, where were they? They cowered because they believed the message. They believed the message that if we continue saying the things that Jesus taught us to say and do the things Jesus taught us to do, we're going to be hanging up on a cross just like that. So they were hanging out probably in that same upper room where they had communion together. But then something changed on Easter Sunday. When we think about a text, any text, our first responsibility is always to go back as much as possible to the time when it happened and look around as, as creatively and imaginatively as we can with the help of sociologists who help us understand what's going on in the day, with psychologists who help us understand uh, what's going on in the internal uh, machinations of the mind, uh, to historians to understand uh, the landscape of the day. We want to talk to people from literature to help us understand the language uh, that we're seeing in any biblical text. And once we have all these voices around the table, if we can find them, then we want to go back and look around and think, okay, what did this text mean to the first people who heard it, who lived this? It meant at least two things initially. The first thing it meant for those disciples who were cowering is that they thought the game was lost, and now because they've experienced this risen Christ, which is mysterious, it's not going to get unmysterious for us. <laughs> it's going to be remaining mysterious. But because they experience something, uh, they now realize that one thing, there's more to life than this flesh and blood. This is one of those moments that a hundred years or so before uh, Jesus was born, hardly any Jewish people believed that there was anything after the grave. The idea of an afterlife, the idea of an afterlife only showed up in the last 300 years before Jesus was born. Everybody thought, you're dead, you're buried, that's it. Jesus comes along, clearly something special is happening in him, his insight, his miracles, all this stuff suggests that there is a God and that God is alive and well. And as Jesus uh, says, he, he gives them an illusion, I may be going in, but I'm coming back out. Once they experienced that there really was an experience of life after the grave, that validated for them that this was not just a hope, but it was reality. And the other piece of it, which explains their courage, is this. Remember that in the eyes of the, most of the people in Jerusalem at that time, in the eyes of them, Jesus was the one who just lost the battle. He's the loser, and because he's the loser, 
he was also the one who was the heretic. It was the religious leaders that said he was wrong, and they proved it by killing him. If God was really with him, then surely he would have been rescued from this fate. That's the logic of the day. That's why the disciples were so concerned about it. But if this Jesus, whom they'd followed, is now being experienced in some way in this afterlife and is clearly welcome in that space, which before was only reserved for kings and significant, you know, religious leaders like Elijah, if Jesus was there and they are followers of Jesus, they connected the dots that they could have hope too. That's why they went from being cowards, rightly so, in the upper room, to going out into the streets and proclaiming the good news that they'd heard for the last one to three years. It changed their lives. It gave them hope that no matter what happened in their life, this wasn't all it was going to be. And they had confidence that they were on to something because the one that they were following paved the way for them. They could see it with their own eyes. It was a real experience. Those first disciples experienced this kind of mysterious thing. They knew Jesus, and then they had this mysterious exchange uh, with a resurrected Jesus that wasn't quite the same, didn't quite follow the same rules of reality, could show up behind locked doors, kind of looked like him, but kind of didn't, ate sometimes. Uh, even in the Bible, you know, you see some, uh, some discussions about well, do we believe that his body was actually somehow raised too? And lots of arguments about that, which really talk more about an argument happening in the first century. All this kind of stuff, but here's what you know, is that the Jesus followers at that time, they believed what they saw, and it changed their lives. But by the time you get to the man responsible for writing two-thirds of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, as you may know him, he never met Jesus. He didn't like Jesus. He didn't like Jesus' followers. It was on his way to round up some Jesus' followers that he experienced the resurrected Christ in a different way, as a bright light that stopped him in his tracks. It was a Satori moment that changed the trajectory of his life. He immediately believed that something was going on in the teaching of this Jesus, and he went from being the great enemy of, Judea, of, of Christianity to its great, greatest advocate and champion. So when we look at a text like this, what are we left with? I want to tell you that it's completely okay <laughs> for you to have questions that are hard to answer. It's okay for you to be in limbo on, okay, I'm not quite sure about the whole body thing and where it was, and I'm uncomfortable saying that it was a resurrection in that way because that, that's really hard for me, but I'm, I'm buying what I'm hearing about. There's something else going on uh, that's intangible that we call God. It's a greater other. I'm comfortable with that. And so for you today, you can look at this story and say, well, with the disciples, I think there's more going on, and I want more of that which is going on. I want more of that in my life. So you can stand with them and say, I'm going to go with that. But you can also go in many more directions with this story today because you're allowed to. The ancient rabbinical tradition did not limit us, which is the Jesus tradition, did not limit us to one understanding of a text or did not mandate that we all have to agree on it a particular way. The ancient rabbinical way said, we want to have lots of perspectives on this. So my question isn't, um, what is the meaning of Easter for us today? 
My question is, what is the meaning of Easter for you today? That this thing happened historically, that it changed the face of the world because of hope, not just for life after death, but, but for life now. To go back to Brian's song, to say, how am I going to live now because I think there's more going on than just flesh and blood. And Jesus seemed to be dialed into that really well. What does Easter mean for you? For those of you who are facing difficult times and maybe an uncertain uh, future, that afterlife thing is everything. You're welcome to it. Rejoice in it. My mother does. My mother does. Uh, every time uh, I've talked with her in the last two years, as she knows she's getting older, she'll be 88 in June, and just when I saw her early, earlier this week, uh, she was bold in saying her version of, to live as Christ, to die as gain, a Pauline statement. She is fully confident that there is more beyond this life, and she relishes in it, and it gives her hope and strength. For some of you, uh, it may be not about afterlife, but it might be about your life right now, that you feel like it is kind of gone, like something's happened to you, and you feel like there's no hope. But the hope of this story is that there's always hope, that the Spirit of God is always about your and mine renewal, about society's renewal, about the creation finding its rootedness again, its meaning again. You're never without hope because this thing that we call God, this person, this presence, this spirit is real, and it is always on our side toward restoration. For some of you, you're disgusted with the world, and you think it's, never, it's going to hell in a handbasket, and there's nothing that can be done. Well, that's fine until you realize that that's always been the story, and the Spirit of God has always been wooing people forward more and more. It may be three steps forward and two steps back. In fact, it almost always is. But take hope. The God who gives you life and breath, that God who we say it's your breath in our lungs, is on that trajectory, is the arc of history, the arc of what God wants to do is bent toward toward uh, justice. And in, he invites us, God invites us to do some of that bending. Your work is not in vain. What does Easter mean to you? What does Easter mean to you? This Easter for me means that we as Crosswalk Community Church Go forward. Go forward with who we are, celebrating how God has been with us for 163 years through transition, 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 transition. Some seem seemingly minor, uh, like the color of carpet or organizational structure. Some major, like theological worldview type major. But here we are. And God continues to woo us forward. I have great hope. I have great hope in you. 
I have great hope because last Thursday night, uh, we had five people uh, get baptized for different reasons that were all wonderful and beautiful. And they were surrounded by other crosswalkers on this stage to celebrate them. This is evidence of another voice being heard, of another woo coming from a different place to call us forward. May you also be filled with hope about your very distant future, hopefully about what lies beyond the grave. But may you also experience it right now for whatever struggle you're in. And may you experience it now as together we try to bring healing and shalom into the whole world. Let's pray together, then I'm going to ask you to pray with me uh, a version of the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray together. So God, on this Easter Sunday, the most important holiday in the Christian calendar, because it radically reshaped and gave confidence to a new vision that Jesus brought from his past in Judaism, rooted in that wonderful tradition, with a different perspective, a different gaze. May we recognize that we are a part of a very long uh, history that has been riddled with different challenges throughout, and it always will be. So may we listen for your still, small voice. May our hearts and minds be wooed by your very spirit to move forward and forward and forward deeper and deeper into shalom, deep peace, well-being for ourselves, for everybody, and the planet itself. May we be your people. May we be your resurrection proclaimers. May we be a voice of hope in a world that desperately needs it. Now, congregation, I ask you to join me in this adaptation of the Lord's Prayer based on Jesus' rendering of who God is and what we're called to be. Let's say it together. Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, who art here and everywhere, thy divine commonwealth come. Thy will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound, modeled after you. Strengthen us for the work we're called to. Amen. May it be so. Thank you so much for coming today. Hope you had a great experience. Happy Easter. We'll see you next week. All right.